I kind of have multiple different hats that I wear depending on the specific circumstances uh, as they relate to chameleons. In this adventure, I speak with Dr. Chris Anderson. We discuss the three hats he wears, chameleon, another exotic pet breeder, leader of the university-based chameleon lab, and finally, an official member of the team determining the international trade status of chameleons. He is living the dream. Buckle up, this adventure starts now. To the music! Welcome, adventurers. Today I have Chris Anderson. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Dr. Chris Anderson. I am a professor of biology at the University of South Dakota. Um, I work with chameleons uh, in my lab for my research. Um, I'm also the chair of the IUCN's chameleon specialist group, and I've been uh, keeping and breeding uh, chameleons for about 25 years now. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> I'm not even sure I knew that much about you. I always learn something about people on these uh, podcasts. So how would you define yourself then? I, I think you kind of did, but can you do it uh, again for the adventures? Yeah. So my interest in chameleons started off as a hobbyist, um, you know, and keeper. And over the years, I've bred uh, various species. And I think um, I would still consider myself a hobbyist and keeper. Uh, but on top of that, I also uh, work with chameleons professionally uh, as a biologist, professional herpetologist, among other different subsets of biology. And in my lab, we study chameleons. I've studied them in the wild, in the, in the lab, uh, and in captivity. But then also I have this hat uh, where I'm also a conservation biologist and help to further the conservation of uh, chameleons in the wild. And so I kind of have multiple different hats that I wear um, depending on the specific circumstances uh, as they relate to chameleons. That's kind of like a dream life for most of the people that listen to this podcast. So uh, how did you get into this? How did this happen? Yeah, so um, I first got interested in chameleons when I was in about eighth grade, um, and I wanted to get one as a pet. And my dad, growing up, had previously kept chameleons. Um, my father and uncles and uh, grandfather all had exotic uh, pets living in Southern California. And, um, you know, they had Jackson's chameleons back in the 60s, uh, keeping them outside and so forth in that environment. Um, and so he, he was aware of some of the challenges of keeping chameleons and was a little bit hesitant um, to just, you know, let me go, go into chameleons without some education, let's say. And so um, he basically, he and my mom uh, made an agreement with me that if I, you know, read everything I could about chameleons and their care and, you know, worked on understanding what they needed for six months, and I was still interested in getting a chameleon at that point, then they would let me get a chameleon. And so I did. And this was back in, you know, the AOL instant messenger days where, um, you know, I was on uh, some of the AOL chat groups for pets talking to, um, you know, chameleon keepers and breeders around the world. Um, some, you know, that are big names in the, the industry uh, to this day, you know, publish books and so forth. Talked to, you know, basically everybody I could, got every book I could find, uh, read every website uh, that was available in those days, found uh, email listers uh, of other chameleon keepers, and really just dove deep into uh, what it would take to work with chameleons. And 
ended up, you know, getting uh, a pair of veils uh, as my first chameleons, enjoyed them. And it kind of just snowballed from there where I just continued to uh, read anything I could, talk to anybody I could, pick up any little bit of knowledge I could, um, started working with additional species. And yeah, eventually... I would say that kind of that interest and uh, experience with them in captivity led to a broader interest in them uh, and their biology, their natural history. And I had always been interested in reptiles and amphibians, and I had kind of decided from a young age that I wanted to, you know, grow up and get my PhD and become a herpetologist. Uh, but it was, you know, through that uh, experience working with chameleons in captivity that I really started to focus on chameleons uh, more broadly. And a lot of the interest in the biological questions that I have is based on uh, my experience with chameleons. And that all started with keeping them uh, as a hobby in captivity. Wow. What eight-year-old <laughs> has a patience to do six months of research? Well, eighth grade. It was uh, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. Eight, eighth grade. All right. So I was wrong. But it's still eighth grade. Who has the patience to do six months of stuff? I think that it was subconsciously a little bit of hoping that it would fizzle out and they, I, I would move on to something else, uh, but it didn't. So... Yeah, they kept their word and we got a chameleon. So was that your first exotic pet? No. So I've grown up with uh, exotic pets. Like I said, my uh, grandfather and my father and uncles, uh, they all had exotic pets uh, growing up. Um, I grew up going to my grandfather's and he bred parrots and uh, other birds. Uh, growing up, my dad had uh, bats that they would catch and flew around their room when they were doing their homework. Uh, otters, skunks, like you name it, they they had it growing up. And so growing up, I had, um, you know, everything from the typical dog and cat to uh, chinchillas and sugar gliders and uh, leopard geckos, ball pythons, um, whatever, you know, snakes or lizards we had caught recently that I was keeping for a little while before letting them go. Various frogs and um, just all kinds of things. I, I had quite a number of uh, exotic pets and so forth up to that point. So what was your first exotic pet? Do you remember? My first exotic pet was actually, I think, in kindergarten. My parents got me an ornate or a Ceratophrys uh, Pac-Man frog. And uh, I also had uh, fire-bellied toads. Um, and so those were my first, I think, exotic pets that I had myself and uh, was responsible for their care and everything. And it, yeah, that was, like I said, a pretty young age, first kindergarten, first grade. Starting off very young on yeah. all these things. What exactly is your PhD in? Yeah, so my PhD, uh, the degree is in biology with a concentration in physiology and morphology. And um, essentially, you know, most graduate programs uh, in the U.S., you will have the degree will be in biology or sometimes zoology or sometimes integrative biology or, um, you know, some derivation thereof that's fairly broad. And then occasionally you'll have uh, opportunities to specialize, but that'll be in like ecology and evolution or physiology and morphology or, uh, you know, things like that that are still fairly broad. Uh, there's not really uh, many opportunities in the U.S. to actually get a degree in herpetology, but really, uh, you know, the research that you do and the expertise that you gain is more specialized than that specific, uh, you know, degree category, if you will. And so my research during my PhD was on uh, feeding in chameleons, and in particular on how temperature affects their feeding performance. And 
kind of diving into the mechanistic basis for how chameleons uh, project their tongues and retract their tongues. And, um, you know, fundamentally, their tongue projection has extremely high performance because it's powered by the recoil of elastic tissues, whereas the retraction of the tongue is powered directly from muscle contraction without that preloaded energy that's uh, stored in the elastic tissues. And so my research was really kind of fundamentally looking at how temperature differentially affects those two types of movements. And uh, chameleons, you know, were a great system for this because they have very exaggerated feeding mechanisms that in a single feeding you have uh, both movement types. And so it was kind of a built-in control and comparison uh, for my research. And so, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm a broadly trained as a biologist, but specialized uh, much more you know, specifically from there, um, but still kind of can um, place myself into the category of a physiologist or an ecologist or uh, a herpetologist or um, an anatomist. So there's there's a whole wide number of uh, kind of subcategories that my research is involved in. So what was your hypothesis for the tongue? Yeah, so, feeding? What was so the hypothesis for the uh, chameleon feeding stuff for my PhD was that elastic recoil was going to um, liberate tongue projection from a lot of the strong thermal effects that otherwise uh, impact muscle powered movements. And so if you think about most reptiles on cold days, they're kind of sluggish, they're out basking until they can elevate their body temperature and then move more quickly. And that's because muscle contraction is fundamentally a physiological process that is tied to the temperature um, that that process is occurring at. And because reptiles can't maintain their own core body temperature through metabolic processes, it's affected by their environment. But when they preload elastic elements and the movement is then powered by those uh, the recoil of those elastic elements that's no longer um that that recoil is no longer a chemical process that's a structural response and so you basically move from a situation where you know the muscle contraction is going to lower lower um the speed at which those tissues are stretched but then the the recoil of those tissue tissues once they've been stretched is almost uh, insensitive to temperature effects, and so there was a number of different experiments we did throughout the uh, the my dissertation, kind of breaking down the motor control patterns and how those are affected by temperature for the different muscles that are involved. Um, I did muscle contractile physiology um, in vitro, so taking living muscle tissue out of the specimen and maximally stimulating it to determine what its physiological capacities were at different temperatures. And then I also did some comparisons um, among species that live in different thermal environments to kind of delve deeper into this mechanism and, uh, and see really what's going on. And one of the cool things is, is that this basically uh, allows chameleons to temporally expand their thermal niche. And what I mean by that is, is that first thing in the morning when other lizards that live in the same ha habitat are basically catatonic and can't chase down uh, prey, chameleons are able to capture prey, consume them, and then wait for their body temperature to elevate where they can then start to digest efficiently. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I love chameleons. I've got a bunch of them, yep. but um, I don't let them get low enough to uh, assume that they're not uh, going to be moving or whatever. But um... And I've heard that chameleons are just like, in some areas, are just like iguanas. They fall out of the trees and, and they get up and come back to life. I get, it's, uh, I've never actually seen that because I don't have that. Yeah. I mean, I've got that kind of cold here in Ohio. But there are species, particularly at high elevations, 
that the temperatures overnight can get below freezing. And so they basically retreat into the deeper portions of their, uh, their bushes and so forth to protect themselves. Um, but oftentimes when they wake up or, you know, in the morning, their body temperatures are right there, right around freezing. And, you know, oftentimes they'll fall off the trees. They'll basically be black. Um, and there's cases where people have kept them in captivity and tried to replicate some of those processes with those same species, uh, particularly like in the UK. And uh, they pick them up and think, you know, okay, these they froze overnight, they're dead. And, you know, over the next hour or so, the sun comes out and they slowly warm up and they start crawling back up the tree. So it's... Yeah, Hohenli is a great example of that. Actually, Braddy put on Thamnobates uh, is another one. Both of those species, um, it gets below freezing in their habitat. Braddy put on Thamnobates, you'll get snow, and they go into kind of these, yeah, dormancy states, but ev uh, even sometimes daily activities where they first thing in the morning are extremely cold. That's cool. I don't want to torture my chameleons like <laughs> yeah. that, but... Um... I guess if it's all in for science, mm -hmm. right? You know. <laughs> all right. So, what actual species do you have now? Right now, I mean, I have uh, chameleons in the lab. I have chameleons at home. Um, I have, you know, a number of different species. Um, I have a few different species of Bradypodin that I, I work with uh, in my research. I've got Jackson Eye, multiple subspecies. I've got uh, Calptratus, of course, veiled. Let's see, what else do we have uh, in? I've got Archaeus tigris, the Seychelles um, tiger chameleon. I've got Furcifer rhinoceratus. I've got uh, Bruxia stumpfi, um, Furcifer lateralis. I've got um, Kaluma beckeri. I've got, oh, quite a few, uh, quite a few different chameleon species. Is there a number now for how many species of chameleons there are? I know yep. So the current... Uh, number of described species that are at least uh, kind of widely recognized. And you get some varying opinions on whether one species is a full species or one species is a subspecies <clears throat> or just a lo uh, locale variant. But the current uh, best estimation is that there's 228 chameleon species that are described. But just about every year, there's new species that are described as well. Yeah, I was telling everyone 212, so I got to catch up. Do you have anything other than chameleons? I do, yeah. So we have, uh, I have chinchillas still. So I actually started keeping chinchillas when I was in second grade. Um, and I have uh, this bloodline that I've had going since I was in second grade. So I have chinchillas as kind of my um, furry, cuddly, um, exotic, uh, in addition to, you know, having dogs and so forth. Um, I have various turtles and tortoises. Uh, so I keep... Uh, my, my wife has a pet redfoot tortoise, uh, but I have a number of um, uh, critically endangered uh, Malagasy tortoises, the Pyxis genus, the um, Madagascar flat-tailed or flat-backed uh, tortoise, as well as the spider tortoises of a couple different subspecies. Um, I also have a number of turtle species. So I have fly river turtles. Um, I have Indian spotted pond turtles, um, then various gecko species. So I have uh, a couple different species of Nephurus, uh, knob-tailed geckos. I have uh, Nephurus amii and Nephurus asper. Uh, I have um, cork bark leaf tailed geckos, um, Europlatus pechmani. Um, I have a few different species of day gecko. Uh, so I have the electric blue day geckos, Ligodactylus williams eye, neon day geckos, uh, which is the Felsuma clemeri, um, the standings day gecko, Felsuma standing eye. Um, what else? I think that that about, about covers. 
uh, the pet. Wow, I, I can't believe you remember the, that entire list. I, I have to, in my head, go around the room. and. and... Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to do yep. it. But So have you ever vended at a reptile show? Yeah, so I've never had my own uh, table, but I've helped uh, friends vend. And so um, when I when I first moved to Florida for my PhD work, um, I was good friends with uh, Mike Monge, who at the time owned uh, FL Cams, um, and he since sold it many years ago. Um, but at the time, he um, was doing a lot of uh, the breeding himself. He was going to importers and um, you know getting additional species. He was hatching. Mellers, Cristatus, Duramensis, um, you know, numerous uh, species at that time. And I would help him at a lot of the uh, reptile shows. And so for a few years, I vended regularly uh, at Florida reptile, reptile shows at, you know, the Daytona show, the various Repticon shows and uh, fire shows and, and so on down there. I also went out to California uh, and vended a couple shows with them out there. And I think that's about... Uh, about all of them, but I, yeah, for, for quite a number of years, I was vending, uh, quite a few shows with him. So what were the Florida shows like? Yeah. So the Florida shows really varied a lot depending on, um, the size of the show, the location, and also, you know, over those few years that I was doing it, uh, kind of when in that period, uh, we're talking, um, kind of earlier on those Repticon shows were really just starting to expand, uh, quite a bit. And we were going from a situation where we had, you know, a, a few shows here and there in Florida um, with, you know, decent chunks of time between them to, you know, towards the end, uh, there was, it seemed like almost every couple of weeks, there was a, a show somewhere, um, you know, within a three hour radius uh, of me in Florida, it seemed. And so, you know, a huge amount of variation in those type of shows. Uh, and then it goes up to talking about the Daytona show where, you know, that, that show was huge, particularly at that time. And, you know, hundreds of uh, vendors, and uh, a huge number of guests and so forth. And so, you know, some of those shows were single night or single day shows, you know, with a relatively few amount of uh, vendors. And then other uh, shows were just massive and, you know, full weekend shows with Friday events and so on. Wow. Yeah. Like Bill and I, as we were talking about the different types of shows, monthly small shows, which kind of most people get to talk to each other, pick up their supplies. Then there's the quarterly shows like Tinley or or Pittsburgh mega show or what have you. And then there's the shows that are in the middle and we weren't able to define the shows. We just defined it the small and the, and the large and everything else that wasn't small or large ended up being that way. So yeah, I just attended the uh, Michigan reptile show uh, yesterday, which was, uh, which is supposedly in Taylor, Michigan is their largest reptile show, which I was, but they're just outside of Detroit, but Detroit, you can't own a reptile there. Oh, really? I mean, you can't own a turtle greater than four inches, which is weird because I don't think you can buy a turtle less than four inches. Yeah. So it's one of those situations. And but um, so they were going to have a um, a venomous show, the one that the people who were in the mega show out of Pittsburgh come there and have a venomous show, and they got all the permits and everything together. But the vendors all said, "No way, I don't want to go into Detroit popper and do it because they don't allow reptiles." And what will people be? You know, will be somebody outside the door arresting everybody who walks out, or what? What the heck will yeah. happen? So it's strange because they have all these reptile shows. Detroit is not a place to have reptiles. So, yeah, interesting. And so when I was doing uh, in undergrad, I was living in upstate New York. And so I used to go down to the Hamburg show, you know, which is a big venomous show, and uh, some of those and. Yeah, so the, I would say the Hamburg show is one of those kind of quarterly intermediate sized uh, shows, but a lot of different stuff being a venomous show. What are you working on personally or 
work-wise as long as you can talk about it, obviously. Yeah. So, um, you know, personally, I've got various projects that I'm uh, like non-chameleon projects that I'm raising up animals to breeding age uh, to hopefully, you know, get them breeding more. A lot of my day geckos, I uh, breed quite regularly and, um, you know, sell those to or trade those uh, with other breeders. Chameleon wise, you know, I, I, I don't typically work with uh, veils or panther chameleons or, you know, some of those species that are easier to breed. Um, personally, I, I focus more on more oddball species. And so I, I kind of classify my efforts with them as constantly trying to breed and usually um, having less success than I would uh, like. And, you know, chameleons are, are challenging. They're, they're tough, particularly some of these uh, other species. And so I'm constantly trying to, um, you know, tinker with my husbandry and improve uh, things, make it more realistic uh, for, you know, what we're seeing in um, the wild and uh, stimulate some of that breeding. And, um, you know, here and there I have, uh, success with uh, various species and other species less so and uh, and so on. And so that's kind of what I'm uh, doing kind of uh, privately, you know, at home. And then in the lab, uh, I have various projects going. So I have uh, five PhD students in my lab uh, who are working on their dissertation research, plus, um, you know, uh, accelerated master's student and a whole slew of undergrad researchers who are doing honors theses or, um, you know, sp uh, uh, various research projects, and most of those focus on chameleons. And so some of them are um, focused on chameleon feeding um, and particularly looking at how chameleons specialized tongue apparatus has evolved and um, what the limitations uh, of that are. I have individuals in my lab, uh, some of my students who are working on evaporative water loss uh, data on chameleons. And so looking at both cutaneous and total evaporative water loss so that we can start looking at how different species um, and species living in different habitats vary in the, that regard. I have a student who's working on metabolic rates in chameleons, uh, looking at body size effects as well as, uh, you know, phylogenetic and environmental effects on uh, metabolic rates. I have a big grant right now working with Brady Poden, various species of South African uh, chameleons, uh, looking at how uh, some more expansion work on uh, some of my PhD work, um, kind of looking at how thermal adaptation plays into um, temperature effects in feeding in chameleons. Um, and so that sees me going to uh, South Africa every year to bring back additional species from different locations and different habitats and doing um, temperature effects uh, feeding experiments. I have students who are working on uh, chameleon locomotion uh, work. Um, I have students that are working on kind of pure morphology work with chameleons, particularly a lot of like CT scan work. <clears throat> it's pretty varied. I, I have a lot of little projects uh, going on all over everywhere. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you could have any reptile that would be legal <clears throat> to, to own, um, and it doesn't matter how many permits you need, yeah. what would you own? Oh, boy. I, I would have to say I, a chameleon would be uh, included in there. And there's a few species of chameleons that I've worked with over the years um, that I can't get anymore or uh, that I would just love to be able to work with and haven't been able to. Um, I, I'd have a tough time narrowing it down to one, but a couple of them would be um, I really loved working with Bruxia paramata, which is the armored dwarf chameleons uh, from Madagascar. They're CITES Appendix 1 now. Uh, you can't get them. Uh, they were fantastic 
fabulous, uh, just fascinating animals. I would love to work with them again. Ramphalian spinosis was a small arboreal chameleon species uh, from Tanzania uh, called the rosette nose chameleon. That's a beautiful species that I'd love to work with again, as well as uh, Kinyongia tenuis, uh, which is the Usambara soft horn chameleon. And Triocerus lateris spinus uh, is just a, a fantastic species. And so I've worked with each of those uh, species before and had a lot of success uh, keeping them. I didn't have any success breeding um, any of those uh, particular species, but those would be ones that I would definitely uh, want to keep again. Um, I really, really love working with the, uh, the Pyxis tortoises, the, um, spider tortoises and the, um, Madagascar flat shells, uh, or flat tailed tortoises. Um, I, I really enjoyed, uh, working with them. Um, and so I would probably want to keep working with them. And, um, up until recently, I also kept Boland's pythons, uh, Morelia, or I guess it's, uh, Similia, uh, Bolani now, you know, I, I had them for. 15, almost 20 years, I, I would love to get a good size uh, breeding group of them uh, and work with them some more. We got your Christmas wish yeah, list, exactly. I'm um, just in time for the season. So tall uh... <laughs> orders there and stuff that is available uh, still is uh, pretty penny these days. So this is called the Reptile Show Reporter. So let's talk about Reptile Show, at least. Um, yeah. What would be yeah. the perfect Reptile Show from your personal perspective? If you went to a reptile show and you just, this was the perfect one, how would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, so I think my favorite reptile shows uh, have always been the kind of quarterly to annual uh, shows. They're bigger shows. They bring in, uh, you know, a, a wide range of vendors from a broader area. I like how those shows tend to bring in um, some keepers that are working with highly specialized species that you don't just see at every show, um, you know, some particularly unusual animals. So I like those, you know, like a Tinley or a, a Daytona show or a super show where you really are starting to see some specialized, interesting, uh, unusual stuff. But I also actually really like some of the, uh, the shows that have a fair bit of wild caught uh, diversity as well. I mean, of course, you know, healthy uh, wild caught where it's uh, not just right off the boat or, um, you know, been in a box for a week waiting for the show, um, but well cared for uh, unusual species. So I, I think for me, diversity at the show is really key. Uh, when I go to a show and it's all ball pythons and uh, leopard geckos and crested geckos and, um, you know, similar type uh, diversity. I enjoy, you know, uh, the show and talking to people and picking up, you know, my supplies and seeing some of that stuff. But it, what I really get excited about is when I go to a show and I see something that I actually haven't seen before um, at a show or, you know, species that are quite unusual and, uh, you know, somebody's been doing well with them. Um, and, you know, that, that diversity and dedication uh, is really something that I, really enjoy from some of those bigger shows like that. And so, you know, Hamburg uh, show is one that I used to go to, um, uh, you know, outside of Philadelphia it, as I was uh, going to Cornell for my undergrad. And uh, that was a really interesting show. It had a lot of diversity. It was a venomous show. It also allowed uh, imports. There was a mix in quality of the imports, but there was, um, you know, always some really nice animals uh, that were imports and unusual species. Uh, and so some of the, the interesting things that I've worked with over the years um, came from shows like that. So looking at 
you know, amphisbinians and stuff like that, uh, that I was able to get and Sicilians, um, that are not really mainstream that you see very often, but finding them at those shows and, you know, knowing what they were and, uh, you know, being able to see them and then possibly work with them was, was fantastic. But then from a vending perspective, um, I really enjoyed those bigger shows too, because of the social aspect of it. So the Daytona show was a fantastic, as well as the super show were fantastic, uh, fantastic shows to, uh, to vend at because, you know, it was two full days, but on Friday there was always, you know, with the, uh, vendor setup, there was, um, events and talks and, um, you know, <clears throat> the auctions and, um, you know, various nightly activities, um, that were going on. And, uh, it was a really incredible, uh, fun experience always to go and, you know, talk at the uh, at dinner and the bars afterwards with other people that you know some that have, have been friends for years um some that i i've kept up with really well over the years and then people that i just don't see very often but uh were attracted to those shows and so <clears throat> for me kind of that community that uh diversity of species uh, but also like those specialized uh kind of niche keepers and breeders uh, that are doing great things. I, I, those are kind of pieces that I love uh, about some of those shows. I, I think that uh, one of the things we're missing at some of these smaller shows is the, not the get together um, uh, community, but it's education, yep. the talk, the, the um, socialization, because there are only a few hours yep. once a month and you get to know the people very well, but there isn't talks and they're, you know, at the last Tinley, they uh, talked about, um, New Caledonia and all the other geckos. And they actually introduced a new species from New Caledonia that was um, in the United States. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, Adeline Robinson had uh, drawn it out and what have you. But um, And for heck's sake, um, Adeline Robinson got married during the auction at the last show. I saw photos, yeah. I I haven't been out to a Tinley show. I've been to various of the other NARBC shows over the years. And Tinley's high on my list of, it, it seems like one of those shows that is kind of my uh, ideal type of uh, environment that over the years I've really loved. But yeah, I, I saw some of the photos from uh, from that show and that's kind of that sense of community that I think is so incredible about uh, some of those big shows. Um, you know, the fact that, yeah, some of the vendors are actually getting married there at the show. Um, it really kind of goes to show you just how connected that the community can be in some of those events. That's definitely the type of show that you described because I was there a couple of weeks ago. It was an incredible show and uh, the atmosphere, everything was great. And they even had the booth separated. Mm. Like they had something, stanchions that go up to the ceiling. And so you didn't feel like you were in a huge show. You felt like every row was a the whole show. Very cool. Yeah, that sounds like a, uh, a show that I definitely need to make a point to make it out to. What are your goals? I mean, do you have specific goals <laughs> So again, it depends on which hat I'm wearing, I think. Uh, um, I would say as a private keeper, um, my goal has always been to <clears throat> leave us better, better educated um, about the animals than um, we were before and uh, kind of trying to continuously move us forward as, as a hobby, as keepers, as breeders, as enthusiasts, you know, uh, keep us pushing the envelope and improving our success rates and, uh, and so on. When I first started keeping and it still kind of persists a little bit, but of course, uh, everybody insisted that, you know, you could only keep chameleons in, uh, screen enclosures. And, you know, over the years, uh, I've started, uh, pushing really 
about, you know, actually glass terrariums can work really well for a lot of species. And it turns out, uh, create much more naturalistic environments for many of these animals and highlighting the fact that, you know, we always say, or we've always pushed this idea that chameleons can only be kept in chameleon in screen enclosures yet out of 228 chameleon species. And many of which, uh, have been available over the years in, uh, in captivity, we've only successfully established a handful of those. And so that's not exactly, um, great success rates that, uh, support this idea that this is the only way that we can, uh, we can do it. And so I think just kind of teaching people to think outside the box and think about, um, you know, these husbandry techniques as tools, uh, to achieve an end goal, which is, you know, replicating the natural environment in a way that uh, promotes the animal's long-term, uh, survival and, uh, well-being, but also captive breeding is, is a major, uh, goal of mine. And, you know, that's kind of expanded a little bit as I've, uh, you know, had my hands in other fires to increasing the education about uh, among the community about, um, you know, sustainability and uh, legality of uh, the trade and, um, you know, making sure we're being smart about, uh, you know, the species that we're, uh, we're trying to get and we're working with and, uh, you know, are conscientious about uh, the threats that these animals uh, have with our own, uh, for lack of a better word, consumption, you know. And uh, so I would say that that kind of education component and uh, trying to advance the hobby is kind of my major goal, um, you know, broadly um, as a hobbyist. Um, you know, specifically, there's uh, varying goals that I have about some of the different species that I'm working with, you know, successfully breeding those and uh, trying to hopefully establish some of those. Um, but that's, I, I would say that at the broader level, um, kind of as a hobby, what I'm, I'm, I'm focused on. From the perspective of uh, my hat with the chameleon conservation with uh, the IUCN's chameleon specialist group, um, one of those is uh, education as well. And so that's kind of where there's overlap and uh, educating people on the diversity of chameleons, the conservation um, situation uh, for chameleons broadly, but also uh, for various species, um, trying to help ensure and facilitate um, conservation assessments so that we know where to target resources and uh, efforts and, you know, do what I can to hopefully prevent the conservation situation for most species getting any worse than they are. And, you know, hopefully again, you know, trying to improve the situation or at least uh, put us on better footing that we know what we need to do um, or know better what we need to work on to uh, conserve some of those species. And then finally um, with, you know, research in the lab, really pleased now that I'm starting to train my own students um, and, uh, you know, foster an interest in chameleons uh, broadly with them. It's interesting, you know, like you, if you look at other groups of reptiles, like crocodilians or something, we're talking about 20 some odd species and iguanas, you know, more species than that, but not all that many species and, uh, and so on. And there are dozens and dozens and, you know, to hundreds of uh, researchers around the world that work with them. But if you think about chameleons, chameleons are a group of animals that have fascinated natural, naturalists and um, scientists since Aristotle. If you mention a chameleon to somebody, pretty much everyone in the public would have an idea of what a chameleon is. They have uh, a picture in their mind of a chameleon. They know about the color change or the uh, tongue projection or some aspect of chameleons. 
and there's 228 uh, species across 12 different genera. They're incredibly diverse and interesting, but there are only a handful of people really in the world who are working with chameleons. It's just a little bit mind boggling um, that you have such disparity. And so I, I would really like to foster more of a focus among um, the scientific community in working on chameleons and uh, learning more about them and their natural history. And I think that that will also hopefully help with their conservation status as we get more people that are you know, looking at uh, the chameleon diversity and uh, concentrating on different species and so on. You know, many species, just by virtue of the fact that they live in remote areas, that there's few people uh, working on them and so forth, don't end up getting seen or documented by uh, scientists or researchers or naturalists of any type for decades. And uh, it's just simply because there's not enough focus or people working on them. And so for me, you know, I'm interested in answering some questions that have fascinated me since I started learning about chameleons and advancing that knowledge. But I also think that supporting and nurturing um, that community that's working with chameleons and trying to improve or in increase that uh, community size uh, would be a huge goal. I guess I was going to ask you next, there's anything left that you want to share with the uh, adventures, but I think probably you put everything into words. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to, to tell our adventures about you or your goals? Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I would say is, you know, chameleons are fascinating animals. Um, they can be challenging and heartbreaking um, all at the same time. You know, we're constantly learning about them and improving our own uh, understanding and practices, but also, you know, uh, learning a lot about them in the wild and so forth as well. And I think one of the things is it's critically important for everyone to strive to, um, you know, improve their own husbandry, but make strides uh, among the community, um, it, you know, so that, we can hopefully establish a lot of these species in captivity because in the long run, you know, there's been many, many chameleon species that have been available over the years that gradually dwindle as far as their availability as different countries close their doors to exports or, um, you know, we, we learn more about how threatened the species is in the wild and uh, their trade has to be reined in. And, you know, it's one of those things that if we knew then what we knew now how far would we be at this point, you know, with establishing some of those species? And so if we can um, continue to always push ourselves and um, advance the hobby and advance the understanding and of our, of the chameleons and our techniques, I would say that that's kind of a, a huge goal that we should all have. Yeah, I agree. I'm a huge chameleon fan, as you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's a good thing about it. Pretty much every species we talk about. Um, mm -hmm. If people want to reach out to you, how would they best do it? Yep. So um, I have a website online. It's uh, chameleonaday.com. So the family, uh, the scientific family name for chameleons. Um, it's my lab website. Uh, it has like high speed videos of chameleon feeding, uh, has some information about some of the projects uh, we have, but it also has my contact information there. Okay. And that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. You could also uh, search for the IUCN's Chameleon Specialist Group. And there are Facebook groups uh, for that, Twitter um, and uh, websites. And uh, you can contact me either 
some of those have my my direct email, but others have the uh, chameleon specialist specialist groups uh, generalized email, and I can be reached on uh, either of those as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our adventures will. It was good talking to you. Please join our Facebook group, Reptile Show Reporter, pictured here. Thanks.